just as the scriptures have told us that you are holy and that Christ is holy and that you have called us to be holy. We stand in light of your holiness, God, and we can only trust that you are at work. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves better before you. It's all been done in Christ, and we praise you for that. So we trust in his completed work on our behalf, and we trust in the continued work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us holy, to bring us closer to you, to draw us closer to one another. And it's all in and through and because of Christ. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Alison Talley, and um, we're going to continue our worship now as we look at our prayer focus. Today we are praying for our students, and God has blessed us with lots of students in our family here. We're going to be praying for elementary students, for middle and high school students, and for our college and grad students. Um, Along with that, I would invite you to turn in your bulletin to a number of other prayer requests that you might like to continue in prayer for throughout the week, Um, particularly be lifting up Sean Cross and his family. His grandmother went home to be with Jesus this week, and um, we know she's rejoicing with her Saviour, but it's a hard time for Sean and his family, and I know they would really um, just be blessed by the prayers of the folk here at Grace. We want to also continue to lift up Marisol Newton, Lee Newton's wife who had surgery this week um, for her continued healing. And uh, we praise God with Josh Tate that his results came back really well this week. His EKG revealed that his heart is back in regular rhythm again. So we rejoice with Josh over that. Continue to be praying for the Pelton family too with Lisa's um, many different uh, difficulties that she's having with her health for uh, encouragement and for healing for her. So I invite you just to look over that list throughout the week and continue to pray for our brothers and sisters. Um, So this morning I have asked uh, Brittany, who is a med student, to lead us in prayer for the college students and med students. And then Beth Carter, who is a high school teacher, is going to pray for our high school students, and then I'll close us off praying for our elementary students. So would you join us as we pray? Father God, we want to thank you for each and every student that you have placed in our body here at Grace Community Church. Father, I know that um, Brad and I have been so blessed by the addition of students in our home group and the life and the the youth that they bring to us. And Lord, we... um, We just thank you for allowing us to do life together. And Father, we lift up um, now the elementary students in our body here. Father, I pray that you would give them a hunger for your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would give them inquiring minds, that they would love to learn and want to ask questions and feel free to ask questions. I pray that, Lord, you would guide them in their pursuit of knowledge and truth. And Father, free them from useless distractions that occupy their time sometimes, but that are just fruitless. Help them, Father, to focus on their studies and show interest in their studies. And Father, for those who are socially having a difficult time, I pray that you would encourage them. Help them to build bonds of friendship with their peers. Um, Help our students, Lord, to consider others more important than themselves. And that's so hard for any of us to do, God, but I pray that you would just um, help them to give out, especially to non-Christians in their midst at school, to be able to share the light and love of Jesus with them. And Lord, for those who are struggling in any academic areas, I pray that you might just reveal to them areas of strength in their lives and help them to see, Lord, ways that they can contribute to those around them. Father, we pray for the parents of our students too, that you would guide them as they lead and direct them in the paths of truth. We pray, Lord, that our parents would enjoy time together with their youngest students and that they would read to them and help foster a love for learning um, in their homes. And Lord, as we continue our worship now in our giving, 
I pray that you'll allow us to give generously from the abundance of what you have already given to us. So bless this offering now, Father, as we give back to you out of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. And welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm glad you chose to be with us this morning. I wanted to give you an update on the absolute newest member of our family. Abigail Buboltz was born five weeks early this week. I think it was Wednesday. Is that correct? Wednesday night? She's still in the hospital, so be praying for her. Just monitoring and making sure she's good enough to go home. So Dave and Lauren are uh, excited with their brand new addition to their family, baby girl, and we're excited to this addition to our family. So let's lift up Abigail Buboltz, if you would. If today is your first day here at Grace Community Church, you probably can imagine from the screen that we're doing something in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we are on a series, we're early in a series of messages rooted in this book. It's not the easiest book of the New Testament to understand. I heard a pastor this week say, I preached on Hebrews 10 years ago and I have no idea what's in that book. And I'm telling you, it feels that way. If you're a, the more you know about it, the less you know about it. It's one of those if you know what I am saying. It's not the easiest book to understand, but it is rich with theological truth and practical applications that are relevant, as relevant today as they were when they were first written. Although our circumstances are quite different than the circumstances of the people who first received this letter that was really a sermon. It was like a written sermon that was delivered to the people. Most likely, again just to catch you up to speed, this is very quick review. Hebrews was sent to a small group of Jewish believers in a house church in Rome, either shortly before, just before, or just after persecution began in earnest in AD 64 when Nero sought to deflect blame for the fire, the great fire of Rome. Everybody was blaming Nero and he says, who can I blame? Oh yeah, Christians, I'll blame them. This was not a sermon that offered five ways to flourish under government persecution. Just wasn't, that wasn't what it was. It, rather, it was a, a, a rich theological treatise on the superiority of Jesus and his sacrifice above all else. So that begs the question, if Hebrews is so difficult to understand, and it is tough to understand, why take several months to study it? Well, that's a good question, and you're going to have a chance to address that in home group this week. Uh, I will, though, repeat what I've said in this series before. Hebrews, probably better than any other place in the Bible, teaches us how all of Scripture works, how it all fits together. And if, if the Bible is God's word to us, and Hebrews helps us understand how it works, then it would make sense that we take the time to understand how we are to relate to God, how He relates to us, and how we are to live in this world. We do all of this under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. If you're just getting here and you want a little more foundation, go back to the website and pick up on all the messages that have been preached up to this point on the book of Hebrews. Today's text is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. I, I typically like to begin the sermon with an analogy and it kind of weave it in and out of the sermon a lot of times and end up where we started. Not today, there's just too much to cover and there's no way we're going to cover it all. Last week, David Calvert preached a wonderful word from Hebrews 2.12, which was really an exposition of Psalm 22. That's one of the characteristics of Hebrews. It's constantly pulling in Old Testament verses, showing that God's plan was always pointing to Jesus. People missed him, but now it's clear. He's come, he's lived a perfect life, he's died, he's been resurrected from the dead. And we see that Scripture was always pointing that way anyway. The title of today, today's message is going to give you an idea of the wide range of truth that the writer was conveying just in this one little text. The Father's good plan, the Son's sacrificial suffering, 
and the believer's unending freedom. Since verse 10 begins with the conjunction for, I thought it would be good to read a few verses to establish context for what we're reading this morning. But the unit before this one, which is verses 5 to 9, begin with the word, begins with the word for. So what about going back to Hebrews 2.1? Therefore. Alright, how about the unit before that, starting in 1.5? Begins with, you want to guess? For. It's one long argument, and believe me, it doesn't end where we end today. Next week we're going to begin chapter 3, which begins with the word, therefore. It just keeps on going. It all is important when you're trying to understand any particular little section. The end of chapter 2 does bring to an end the writer's uh, focus on Jesus' superiority to angels, which was, in effect, showing that Jesus was superior to the Old Testament law because angels were the mediators or the bringers of the law to Moses, the ones who brought God's law to Moses. Next week, we start seeing how Jesus is superior to Moses. And the point is, he's superior to the law. It always comes back to law, gospel. But here's the point. This is why the Old Testament is so important in understanding the New Testament. The Bible is not two different stories. It's one story with two parts. It's all one long story and law and gospel are the two parts. Which is better? Gospel for sure. But the law is, is swallowed up in the gospel. It's God's desire. It's God's design for us. But we can't do it on our own. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he did for us what we couldn't do. All of that wrapped up in all of scripture, but especially in Hebrews. And by the way, as we read Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, see if you pick up on some of the language about some Exodus language when the Israelites were freed from Egypt. We're going there next week, but it already begins right here. So if you would, please stand as we read Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. For it was fitting... That he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. More than anything else, this is God's desire for us. To trust him. I will put my trust in him. Comes from Isaiah 8. And again, also from Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children God has given me. We will trust you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, we thank you for this incredible truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you became one of us. And when we say life is hard, while you have every right to say buck up and just get over it, 
you say, I know. <laughs> I understand. I was just like you. Jesus, thank you for taking upon yourself flesh. Thank you for doing what we were incapable of doing, living a perfect life and then dying a death that we deserved. Thank you, Father, in the resurrection, showing that you accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And as we learn about that today, may our hearts be motivated to serve you, to tell others this incredible news that Jesus saves. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, I'm going to be honest. There's about six weeks worth of material in this passage. And I only have an hour and a half to get it done this morning. Not really, if you're brand new. Although there's no way to cover everything that's in here. We're going to touch on a lot of it. But it's kind of going to be like putting dots on a page. And then I want to encourage you, take notes if you're a note taker. You can go and read this online. Even if you don't want to listen to it again, you can read it. And then as you start connecting the dots, may you find that the beautiful face of Jesus is forming in your heart. Uh, Today's message consists of a lot of facts and a couple of lists. But there is also application that will bless you beyond words. And don't take my word for it. It's not my word that's good. It's God's word that is good. So, the first truth found in our text is that the Father's plan to send Jesus to die for us was a good plan, and it is a good plan. The Father's plan to send Jesus to die for us was and is a good plan. If you believe scripture, that may seem very obvious to you. Yes, it's a good plan. It's our salvation. It's all wrapped up. We don't, we're not saved apart from Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for sending your son. But many in our world would say that a plan in which the father abandoned his son, turned his back on Jesus as he suffered wrath that equaled hell in eternity for us is a horrible thing. Didn't Jesus beg the Father, is there some other way? And yet God was silent. What a plan, what an awful plan, some would say. And yet Hebrews 2.10 says, it was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, Jesus, the author, originator, pioneer, trailblazer, all of those words fit here. That he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Or you could say that he would make, the author of their salvation would be made complete through suffering. But here's the point. Our salvation is completed when Jesus died. And God put his stamp of approval on it in the resurrection. It was fitting. God's plan was good. Do you agree with that? Jesus suffering for you is a good thing for you, right? Do you also agree that your suffering in God's will is a good plan? It is. One of the ways that we are united with Christ and our unity with Christ is is manifest, is through our suffering. In fact, Paul got to the point in his life where he said, I long to know you to the point that I want to suffer if that brings me closer to you. When I hear Christian songs like, Lord, if it takes the rain, bring the rain, I'm thinking, wow, you're awful young to be asking that. I'm not... Gonna be, I'm not quite that mature yet that I say, let me suffer so I can know you that much better. I want to be there though. I want to enter into suffering whatever form it takes and walk with the one who suffered for me. Notice that here, as so often in the New Testament, glory 
and suffering are mentioned in the same breath. Glory in this context is synonymous with salvation, which leads to the second point. While Hebrews 2.9, I hope you have your Bible open. And by the way, let me encourage you. I don't care if you use a phone for your Bible. That's fine. But since Hebrews takes us all over Scripture, let me encourage you to bring your Bible to church as we go through Hebrews. And look back at, at verse 9. It associates Jesus' death with all of mankind. In fact, let me, let me read it. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. But in verse 10, he talks about the many, not all, but the many. God loves all people as they are, but he doesn't accept all people as they are. I don't know, I don't think I hear, too, hear it too much today. But maybe 15, 20 years ago, you know what you would hear a, light, hear a whole lot? I just want you to accept me as I am. God doesn't accept people as they are, did you know that? He loves them as they are, but he doesn't accept them as they are. Remember when the rich young ruler came to the Lord? And he said, what, am I, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I've kept them all from birth. I'm good. Jesus said, yeah, but you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and follow me. Jesus put his finger on the man's idol. And he went away sorrowfully. And scripture says that Jesus loved him. But he didn't call him back. He didn't say, look, look, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that later. He said, here it is. And the man, Jesus does not accept us as we are. Our Only hope for salvation is to accept Jesus on his terms, which is Lord of all. It's not Jesus plus any other God. It's not Jesus plus our good works. Really, this is the whole point of Hebrews. Don't quit trusting Jesus and start leaning on your good works for salvation. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus only. It's not Jesus plus self. It's all Jesus. So, was Jesus' death sufficient for all mankind or did he only die for the elect? You have strong opinions about that, I'm certain. What does elect mean anyway? Time for point three, which is, it's a good time to remember that you are not God. (laughs) Okay, so that's not in the text, but it sort of is. I mean, the author is reminding the readers that God is bigger than their thoughts about God and their thoughts about how life should go if they follow Jesus. Many had walked away because they said, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. You've had that experience, many of you, haven't you? This life, I could have anticipated anything except that. I didn't see that coming. And it caught me off guard and it hurts. Surely these Hebrew believers would remember Isaiah 55 when God said to his people, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. Or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know something, there is absolutely no way that American culture does not affect the way that you interpret Scripture. No no possible way. Don't be offended by such a strong claim. Nor be alarmed that it's always been so. Every generation, every culture, every personality, we're all... The things that we are in this world impact the way that we look in Scripture, here's just a little one, and oh, I do hope it doesn't make you upset. I just, want, I just want you to think about it. To say, times are worse than they've ever been, Jesus must be coming soon. I'm not sure I understand that. I'm not sure that the great majority of believers through the centuries would understand that. Now, if you say, okay, 
Here's what scripture says about Israel and all of that. A lot of people don't agree with you who are believers, but you can make a case that way and say it's all lining up. That's okay. But to say times are worse than they've ever been, God's not going to let things go on like he has. That's an American culture kind of thing because you know what? We don't like any hard times at all. Which also affects where, where we believe the rapture will come when the tribulation gets here, right? It'll come before the tribulation. God's people are never going to go through that. Mm, tough one in church history to defend. Um, but, but here's the deal. God's word, and, and by the way, we talk about this in Grace Connection class. What is the prominent structure of church life in America? For the most part, it's congregational rule. Kind of fits our government, doesn't it? You know what it was in the first century? Top-down, heavy, top-heavy rule. You know what? It fit the culture. That's the way the government operated. That's the way all businesses operated. That's the way church operated. We tend to be affected. We have elder rule. We think we can make a biblical case for it. Other people can make a biblical case for theirs, right? But God's word is solid enough to withstand our interpretations based on our culture. We don't think ours is. We do everything we can. And you should too. Do everything you can to not let culture sway the way that you interpret scripture. But it's almost impossible. And that's what the writer was saying to these people. Don't look at your situation and then try to figure out God. Look at God and let that speak to your situation. Let God speak to your circumstances. We live after the enlightenment. So it's crucial in our minds that we find a way to understand and explain everything that is knowable. And scripture is knowable, right? Especially with the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, it is knowable to the level that God desires for us to understand. Don't forget, though, the truth of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Say it if you can, not not out loud, but just in your heart. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we might do all the works, all the words of this law. In other words, there are some things that we just won't know until we get to heaven, and then, not sure it'll matter, maybe it will. I don't know how that all works. I do know this, I'm called to trust the Lord no matter what. No matter what the subject, God's desire above all else is to trust him. And speaking of trusting him, here's something he wants you to know and to trust. If you believe Jesus died for you, then you are a part of God's remnant. That's what the writer is communicating to his readers from verse 13, which comes from Isaiah 8, 18 and probably Isaiah 8, 17 as well. And those who heard this sermon would have understood the context, which was, Isaiah, you, your family, your wife, your children, I've I've told you to name them a certain thing because I want people to understand that I'm going to take care of my own little remnant. A remnant, by definition, is limited to a few. And the little house church in Rome certainly fit the bill, wouldn't you say? must have felt like the room was shrinking along with the numbers of people who came into the room and who still believed that Jesus was the only way to be saved. Does it feel like our American church room is shrinking sometimes? Like the numbers are getting smaller and smaller. It's not, you know, not look around today and it's about the numbers that we typically have. And there are some churches that are booming, but, but just think about America as a room. It's smaller and smaller. We live in the southeast, so it's difficult for us to get our minds around what's going on in the rest of our country. And it may be that you're not tempted to walk away from Jesus, but maybe, maybe your beliefs could be moderated just a little bit. You know, don't you think? Be a little bit more inclusive. What the Lord's word is to you, stay right where you are. Be faithful. God's plan, even if it includes suffering for you, 
is a good plan. The last truth before a a touch of application is this. In God's good plan, our salvation could only be accomplished when Jesus became one of us and died for sinners. We sang about it all morning so far. We've already sung about it. The truth found in our text is, in fact, remarkable beyond words that Jesus became one of us. He entered into solidarity with us. It just so happens, don't you know, that this week, as I was reading through the one-year Bible, which is what I'm doing this year, and I'm reading in the New Living Translation, just so happens that our text, I think was yesterday's reading, but I was reading a little bit ahead, so... I saw it earlier. And my goodness, I I was paying special attention to how the New Living Translation translates this text, Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. So I want to read it one more time together, but this time with the New Living Translation. And then I'll draw application from the text related to the last point. God's good plan of salvation could only be accomplished through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Hebrews 2 in the New Living Translation. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, through salvation that is. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now, Jesus And the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Worship leader that David was telling us about last week, Jesus is. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. Remember, this is a remnant. He's saying, don't be surprised that you're small. Just like in Isaiah's day where people were turning away from God. God saved a remnant and it doesn't mean that you are going to be safe. But it does mean that you belong to God when everybody else is wrong. I and the children... God has given me, we'll put our trust in Him. Verse 14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have... All who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Galatians, Romans, they all make it clear. All believers are the true descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Look, what did the high priest do? He represented the people before God, but this, these descriptions were never applied to them. I, I don't believe they're always applied to Yahweh. Merciful, faithful. He was a merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So does that help you understand the text? Look, it's not too early to me, for me to encourage you next year, read through the Bible, and I would encourage you, read in the New Living Translation. It's not the best translation, but it is very good for helping us understand. If you see something you've never seen before, here's what you should do. Say to yourself, hmm, and then go into the ESV or one of the better translations, maybe a commentary. Look, if, by the way, if you don't have an ESV study Bible, please get one. If, you, if at all possible, ask for that for Christmas. All the stuff that I'm reading about Hebrews... 
The ESV study Bible notes are really good. Really good. They're at a, at a little bit of a higher level than you might anticipate. But they are very, very good. So, um, for now, let's consider these three points of application, which also serve to fill in a few bits of information that have been left unsaid so far. <clears throat> the first beautiful word to us is, Jesus' sacrificial death frees us from the guilt and shame of our sin. So, as I just mentioned, this is the first time Jesus' priestly work has been mentioned in Hebrews, but oh boy, is it going to be mentioned time and time again as we go through this book. Jesus is said to be our great high priest. The primary focus for now, even though we'll understand it much fuller later, is that Jesus' death atoned for our sins. You saw the word in our text in the ESV, propitiation. I know that's something probably you were talking about on the way to church this morning, propitiation. Um, It's quite expansive in our meaning. In his sacrificial death, Jesus both averted the wrath of God that was directed towards us, and he also restored the relationship that sin had caused. So here we are walking away from God and he's going to breathe down fire and Jesus stands in the way of the wrath and then he turns us around. And in so many words, the, the father says, my son, my daughter, The same as he does to Jesus. That's what this whole text is about. We're brothers and sisters with him. Because he became one of us and died in our place. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. There may be some in your family that are ashamed to call you part of the family. Or vice versa, I'm sure. (laughs) Maybe... Others are ashamed of you and trying to bring shame upon you. Heaven knows we live in a day of public shaming as long as it can be done from a keyboard and not face to face. Just don't do that. If you have repented of your sin and you've trusted Jesus' atoning death on your behalf, And Jesus is not ashamed of you because your guilt and shame have been removed. They've been taken away. They've been covered over. The wrath of God is done toward you. What have you done in your life that you would be ashamed of if it were told right here this morning? If in fact... We said, okay, up next on the screen we have an accounting. We We have a video, you know... Of something that Ricky Lee has done. Mm-hmm. Probably the worst thing Ricky's done is hit his snooze button in the morning. I don't know. On the alarm. But some of you would have some pretty exciting video, I'm going to guess. What would you be ashamed of? What have you done this week, for goodness sake, that you're ashamed of? What have you said? What have you thought? Everything you've ever done. Every thought that's ever crossed your mind, Jesus knows about it. God knows about it. But the guilt and shame have been removed. And he's not ashamed to call you brother. Does that motivate motivate you truly to go out and sin some? The fact that Jesus has removed your guilt and shame. Hey, I just keep on. No. It motivates us the exact opposite way, doesn't it? To serve this one, to love this one, to please this one. Who has done such for us. But that's not the only good news in the the text. There is this. Jesus' resurrection frees us from the fear of death. Satan has no power that has not been granted to him by the Lord. But because of our sin, because of the fall... He has held the fear of death over our hearts and our minds and our emotions for all of our lives. It's another one of those American things, you know? 
we're isolated from death, insulated from death. Hospice is helping, people are dying at home, but but even still, as much as possible, hey, do you want to go? This might be grand, grandpa's last. No, please don't make me go to that. We don't want to be around death because we're afraid of it. We say we're not, but we are because we've got so much living to do here. But a lot of our living is a wrong kind of living. Not that it's wicked and sinful. It's just not with God in mind. All through scripture we see the war for our souls that goes unseen by human eyes. Freedom from the fear of death was accomplished when Jesus died on our Behalf, which doesn't mean that we will not die. It just means, as we are told in 1 Corinthians 15, that the sting of death has been removed. No longer does death hold power over us. The connection is Hebrew, in Hebrews is the quoting of Psalm 22:22, which many believe prophesied not only Jesus' crucifixion, but also his resurrection. Because if we are united with Christ in his death, Romans 6 says, we will also be united with him in his resurrection. That's a picture of baptism, which, by the way, is next week. If you have not been baptized, it's past time. Okay? You believe in Jesus, you haven't been baptized, talk to me. Today, plan to be baptized next week. So do you think... This word from the writer of Hebrews was a word of encouragement for those who face the prospect of imminent and miserable death by execution. I I bet it was. I I doubt you you lie awake at night worried about a door being broken down by government authorities, dragged off quick, brief interrogation, and then executed by crucifixion or, or, or as sport in the Colosseum and when lions or wild dogs are let loose. We don't, we don't worry about that, but we do lie awake worrying what the report's going to say from the doctor, <coughs> from the test. We do lie awake worried if our loved ones are safe and sometimes they're not. And there's a lot about death that makes us fearful. It's frightening, even if you know Jesus, but know this. If he calls you home, when he calls you home, if you know him, when he calls you home, he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And the moment you draw your last breath on this earth, you will walk into unspeakable joy. And you will see Jesus. We're all going to die. Some sooner than others. But in Christ, we are going to live and look back and say, wow, I just thought I was living. This is real life. It's perfect because the perfect Son of God gave His life in order to purchase it for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Last, Jesus' solidarity with us frees us from the power of temptation. Not temptation itself, not the presence of temptation. But it does free us from the power of temptation. But before Jesus became human and was tempted as we are, or because he was human and tempted as we are, he is able to help us with temptation. Most likely the writer of Hebrews had in mind the temptation to abandon Jesus in the face of persecution. That's probably the specific point he was making. But the application goes so far beyond that. He is able to help us with temptation. Temptation is the greatest when it's resisted, is it not? Give in and well, temptation is over. Sin has taken full force. Jesus never gave in. He understands temptation burning at levels we're not even aware of. 
And he did not sin. Perhaps you have been considering abandoning Jesus because someone other than your spouse has caught your attention. And you may think, it's not that I'm abandoning my spouse, it's just that I just want to have the kind of love God always intended for me to have. It's an American way of thinking. It's, it's, it's a 21st century American way of thinking. And pagans think better than that. Pagans know better than that. To make excuses, to walk away. Here's the good news. God will help you in all of your temptations. In three weeks, Lee Williford, one of our elders, is going to develop this topic further as he preaches from Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. Too late to back out now, Lee. Once again, we're going to be reminded that Jesus, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with us and to help us because he was made like us. And this application is going to be developed, oh my goodness, in the book of Hebrews. What a blessing to us. Jesus was made like us. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Today, before we come to the Lord's table uh, to remember Jesus' great sacrifice and be nourished by Him, I want to ask the worship team to come and also go ahead for the elders and deacons, if you would be coming forward uh, and to prepare to serve communion. But before we do, we're going to sing. On November 29th, the Advent season will begin and we're going to celebrate the truth of today's text Jesus became one of us and it was a right thing to do he became one of us lived the perfect life as the second Adam he lived a sinless life which is of course impossible for us in our fallen state but Jesus at the end of his perfect life became a perfect sacrifice suffered death absorbing God's wrath against us Always we remember the full story, contemplating also the resurrection in which God showed that he accepted Jesus' um, sacrifice on our behalf. If you're like me, when, when you come to the birth of Christ, and people are celebrating the birth of Christ, if you're like me, you may have a tendency to say, well, yes, That's nice, the incarnation is nice, but you know Jesus is going to have to die for us. Then we can really celebrate at the resurrection. But you know what? God said it was fitting that he became one of us. And that God would make complete our salvation through the suffering of the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus, the author, author and finisher of our faith. Same word, author, that's used later. So, this week or this year, as Advent season approaches, we're going to get a jump start on it. Not going to continue all the way. But just like the angels rejoiced when Jesus was born. See, it's not competition. God's just stating where Jesus ranks as far as the angels are concerned in Hebrews. Not competition. The angels rejoiced. And the shepherds worshipped. And we're going to rejoice and worship with him. This morning especially, before communion, as we sing in response to the text and in preparation for communion, one of the most theologically rich hymns that the church has been blessed to sing over the years. Hark the herald angels sing. So if you would please, I think Luke's account of the Lord's Supper is my favorite in all of scripture. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus saw that the Father's plan was fitting. In the garden, he agonized, he wrestled. And yet he says at table, I have earnestly desired to eat this supper with you that points to the sacrifice That will bring you life. For I tell you I will not eat it again. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks he said. Take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given things, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And as we partake at the table today, we eat the bread that symbolizes his body and we drink the fruit of the vine that symbolizes his blood. We're nourished with the presence of Jesus, his love for us, his union with us. He died that we might have life. Let's rejoice. Our Father, we thank you for the good thing you have done for us, the amazing thing you have done for us. Lord, surely it crosses our minds. Was there another way? It's a moot point. It was fitting. The Father arranged salvation this way for fallen men and women. Your love for us is beyond what we can imagine. When Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, submitted to the Father's plan and through the Holy Spirit became one of us. And willingly gave up his perfect life. We worship you. On this day. In Jesus name. Amen. If you're a baptized believer. We invite you to come to this table with us. And celebrate the Lord's death. And resurrection and remember the, the, the fact that he is coming back to take us to a place that he is preparing for us. Would you remain standing for the benediction? Our study of Hebrews has been a continual reminder to us that Jesus needs to be at the center of our lives. Our celebration of communion reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. So as you leave to start your week today, go in the peace and the knowledge that no matter what you face this week, Jesus has paid the price for us all. In Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.